the way I see mentorship is that you change a person's outlook on what they're capable of. And on some level, my dad telling me to be world-class, well, he's my dad, right? And here's someone who's the CEO of a, probably was a Fortune 50 company at that point in time, just sending me those pictures and barely knowing who I was, giving me that opportunity. I don't even know if he knew what a life-changing series of events he created for me. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Abraham Lincoln, whatever you are, be a good one. Our guest today... Anne Mirakau has done everything in her life and career at a world-class level. She's the co-founding partner of Floodgate, one of the world's most successful venture capital firms, and was named one of the New York Times' top 20 venture capitalists worldwide. She's a pioneer investor in many technical companies and was one of the first investors in top organizations such as Lyft and Refinery29. She's also a lecturer in entrepreneurship at Stanford, a member of Yale's Board of Trustees, and a founder of All Raise, a nonprofit committed to improving diversity in funders and finders. And welcome. I'm very excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks for having me. So you've talked a lot before about your commitment to excellence is, was how that was rooted sort of early on in your childhood. How did your parents instill in you that determination and how did you foster it as you, as you continued to grow? Yeah, this is uh, something that always came out of my dad. Uh, he was one of these, probably one of the smartest people I've ever, ever known. And I've known a lot of smart people in my life, but he was always extraordinarily curious and had a very high set of standards for everyone around him. And that would include everything from honesty to, um, our own personal belief systems, but also the work products that we had. And so, you know, I came to the conclusion fairly early on in my life that no matter what I did, everything I did had to be at a level that exceeded all expectations. And the way my dad always put it was that no matter what we did, small or large, that we had to think about whether or not the effort itself was world class. And do you have a, like an earliest memory of this? Like, is there a, do you, do you remember like the first time you were like, well, what do you even mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I remember this being for, even for homework assignments in elementary school. So you can imagine, you know, in elementary school, you're, you're pulling together a book report. Yeah. And as a kid, sometimes I just get really lazy about it and I just be pretty sloppy about pulling together a quick summary and maybe drawing like a stick figure picture in the front and then trying to turn that in. And before we would turn in any homework, the the only thing that we really had to do is we had to show our parents. Yeah. And I remember that my one of my most distinct memories was one of these book reports showing it to my dad. It must have been first or second grade. And he said to me, you know, if someone was writing a book report for this book. And you took all of those book reports in the entire world 
and you put them all together, do you think this would be one of the best ones or do you think it would be average or do you think it would be lower than average? And I, I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, this would definitely be not even average. And without even saying anything, I just remember taking that book report off of the desk and slinking back to my room to do a better effort. And and I think that kind of lesson happened over and over again, whether it was academic work or even something that they asked us to do, you know, clear the table of all the dishes. Did you actually pay attention to the details? Did you did you just take all the, the dishes and put it on the counter or did you put it in the sink? Did you actually clear off all the food from the dishes? Did you then go back to the table and wipe it down? Those are the things that you would start to notice once my dad put those high standards in front of us. So there are a couple of things that I'm going to ask you about that's interesting. There's one pattern I just noticed, but do you know, like, where did it come from for your dad? Was that something that his parents sort of put on him or was that something he developed maybe because he wasn't at some point or... Sometimes that's usually like, you know, you're going with or against something that concrete. You know, I think, so my dad grew up in post-World War II Japan. Yeah. And if you can imagine what the country was like at that point, it's a decimated country. And the hopes for the entire country are placed literally on the generation that my dad comes from. And uh, in some ways, it's the greatest generation in the United States, but it is also this great generation in, in my dad's era where, you know, he was sort of in high school in post-war Japan. And the, the hope was that this group of young people would physically and mentally build the country up again and take them out of the economic deprivation that they were in at that time. And so the the ethos of that generation was to be great and that the whole country was counting on this generation Mm -hmm. to be great. And so I think that's really where it comes from, that there was a lot of suffering during the war for for my dad's generation. And then and then coming out of that, realizing that it was on them to have to rebuild everything. Yeah. And it occurred to me as you were saying this, most parents say to their kids in these contexts, is this the best that you can do? Which, of course, then the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, when, when that question is asked. But that's a, yeah. it's actually a different strategy to just even with a first grader to sort of set a objective world-class bar. Yeah, and I think I, I appreciated that because it was it was implicit in that was this assumption that you can be great. Yeah. You just haven't expected it of yourself quite yet. Right. And so I think that that's what was really a high bar always. And and my dad used to say to me, you know, doesn't matter what you do for a living, you just have to imagine that you're one of the world's best at whatever yeah. you do. And that was, that was a high standard. I remember feeling a lot of pressure as, you know, a teenager or someone in my early 20s. I remember wandering a bit because I wasn't really sure what I would be great at. But implicit within that 
statement that my dad made to me, I think what I loved about it was that he always assumed that I could be great. Yeah, that's interesting. And segueing, you 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 talk about being incredibly introverted, but you managed to become a a champion debater. So first, what made you get started? And then, you know, how did you go from being someone that's introverted to with not only comfortable with debating, but so good at it? Yeah, you know, so I I used to play the piano and I was quite good at playing piano and I actually was never afraid of performing. In fact, even as a really little kid, if I could find a place to perform, I would even request if I could play. But I hated public speaking. So I would never want to say my name or announce the piece that I was playing. And so my brother just took this upon himself and he'd always be the one to announce my name. And one of my most distinct memories is just in junior high, remembering that there's a moment where I'm standing on stage and my brother comes out on stage with me so he can say, this is Ann Mira. She will be playing a Chopin Nocturne. And the, the voice in my head was, this is ridiculous. You've got to get over this. And uh, I was naturally a curious kid. In fact, uh, in fifth grade, we were, we were always taking summer classes at the local community college. They would offer summer classes even to elementary school kids. And one year, I took the, the normal math class. And then my mom said, you have to take one more class. And I found this class on negotiations. And I, I asked to take that class. And it, my mom was a little bit taken aback because it was part of the adult school curriculum. Yeah. And so I think I was probably the only... 10-year-old amongst a bunch of 20 to 40-year-olds taking this class. You're just looking uh, for strategies to, to deal with your parents, right? It was probably. <laughs> I remember my mom said, why do you want to take this class? I said, well, they're teaching from this book, Getting to Yes. Oh, yeah. It feels like I need to get to yes. And my mom, I mean, my parents were just always, they would just go with the flow. I think they just didn't, even, they ceased to ask questions after a while. They would say, okay. You do, you do you, Anne. Yeah. And so I remember in that class also, there was this element, you didn't have to do a lot of public speaking. It was like one-on-one conversations. And I was never afraid of talking to adults, but there was one part of the project where you did have to get up in front of the class and I was terrified. And that combined with this one experience in, in junior high where I was performing on the piano and yet unable to speak. I just felt like this was a fear I had to face. Hmm. And so when I got to high school, miraculously, there was a speech and debate team. And back then, you know, speech and debate was not the team that anyone wanted to join. It was a, a bunch of weird kids who, who had this interest in, in dialogue and, and philosophy. Um, but I found this group of people who were just my crew. And I, I loved spending time with them. I loved the way they thought. And so I dove in, hoping that it would address some of my fears. And it went a little further than that, right? So, so what, when did you know, like, what was your first sort of pivotal moment in debate when you thought, like, I could be good at this? Well, there were two years where I was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I was, 
but you I kept was, going. I'm guessing you weren't allowed to quit in your family. No, actually, what was really funny was after sophomore year, right at the summer, my mom turns to me and says, you know, this whole debate thing is not working out. Hmm. And she was right. I had, I had not even gotten a single trophy, you know, like you could take like 30 second place in some of these tournaments and you would get a trophy. And I had yet to accumulate a single one. And there was very little sign of potential at that point. And my mom was well, well versed in sort of college admissions at this point, because my brother had gone through the process, or was about to go through the process. And she, she was concerned that I had not accumulated very much in terms of achievements. And so I had sort of piano going for me, but really nothing else. And she was worried that I was putting all my eggs in this one basket that was not working out. And so she said to me, I don't think this is the right thing for you. You're a child of immigrants. Uh, We speak Japanese at home. We can't help you with speech and debate, and you're at a distinct disadvantage. And so maybe you should try something else. And the thing she suggested to me at the time was fencing. She had done her research, and she had found out that if you, if you were pretty good at fencing, you could get into all these Ivy League colleges. And I remember looking at her, thinking to myself, fencing, like that's the most random sport And to make matters worse, I'm not very athletic at all. So to start fencing my junior year in the hopes of getting to college based on that sport, I kind of got the sense like maybe I know myself a little bit better than my parents do. And so I I told her, hey, this summer, I'm going to spend a lot of time working on speech and debate. And they would announce all of the potential topics for the next year. And I said, you know, I'm just going to sort of bury myself in debate. And and if in the first two tournaments I don't do well, uh, meaning I don't place, then I will quit. And I think my mom basically saw the writing on the wall and she's never been able to do this before. So this is basically the guarantee that Anne will quit. And that summer, you know, this is pre-internet. So it's not like you could just get on the internet and research all these topics. I went to the Stanford uh, library because I lived in Palo Alto at the time and maxed out the number of days that I could go into the library because I had some Didn't know there was a limit that you're going to the library. The public is allowed to go into the library just a certain number of days. And so I maxed that out. I like photocopied all of these journals and philosophy books. And I sat down and I remember there are different topics. I debated myself like day in, you, day you always out win. all these topics. And um, that first tournament, I walked in and the first round that I sat in, I looked over at my opponent and I realized that I had completely outmaneuvered him because I had out-researched him. I had out-thought him. I had out-prepared him. And 
up until that moment, I always thought of competition as sort of smarts, that you would go in and if you were more talented, that you would win. And I think the biggest lesson that I took away was that there is no amount of talent that will outperform the work that someone else is willing to put in. And that the, the really interesting piece is love for something, curiosity will cause you to outprepare a lot of other people. And so those first two tournaments, I actually took first place in one and then second place in the next. And I remember the big lesson was, hey, I know myself better than my parents do. They may love me, but only I know my own real potential. And the second was that loving something and and really feeling passionate about it is what talent actually is. And to me, those two lessons were probably the most formative lessons that I've ever encountered in life, but I, I had the privilege of learning them the summer after sophomore year in high school. So someone recently quoted for me, they said, I'm probably going to screw this up, but they said, hard work beats talent that doesn't work very hard. <laughs> and I, I, thought it was, I thought it was a good quote. Yeah, totally. And you know, it was funny because I went back to the Palo Alto High School debate team. And you know, back when we were there, there was probably, I don't know, 12 students who were really into it. We didn't even have a coach. The the teacher who was our coach left to go to another private school. And so we had to like scrounge around and we went across the street to Stanford and convinced a bunch of folks, students there to, to coach us. They turned out to be fantastic coaches. But I went back, I don't know, a few years ago, and there's now 90 people in that team. Wow. And I, I looked at them and I said, you know, the problem is if you love it, you should be here. But if you're here because your mom told you you should be a part of the debate team or because your friends are doing it, it's a total waste of time because someone else out there is like me. Someone else out there is going to be willing to debate herself for eight hours, 10 hours a day until they can perfect whatever they're going to say. And they will be able to anticipate everything that you're going to say. And how do you beat that? You can't. You can't do that just because someone is telling you to practice. You have to feel it deeply inside of you. And so go find that thing that even if your parents never told you to do it, you'd do it. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, 
Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I've seen this with with kids in sports, and I, I do think you need to be pushed into things to try them and, you know, have that discomfort because you're not going to like a lot of things right when you start them, but you need that trial. But eventually I think to be great, the intrinsic motivation needs to kick in because the, the extrinsic can only be held for so long. Yeah. Yeah. So from there you, you became a prolific debater. You got into Yale, you got yourself this, this internship. And I, and I heard you tell the story of very, very similar. You're talking a little about the internship and the conversation you had with your father, kind of on the on the first day. Oh, of the yeah. Internship. And, and then what happened? What came of that? It's an amazing story, and that was the basis for the for the Friday Forward I wrote, which has I think been one of the most popular to date. Oh, awesome! Yeah. So you know, as part of my financial aid package at Yale, I had to do work study, which basically meant you had to go to this office and find some job to do for, I think it was like eight to 10 hours a week. And when I went to the office, there were two choices. One was refilling formaldehyde levels in jars in a biology lab, or the second one was office work in the Dean of Engineering's office. So I chose quite obviously door number two and uh, ended up filing things for the Dean of Engineering. And at the time, there was very, very little sort of high-level work that I got to do, right? I would just go into the office. I would photocopy most of the time, and I'd go into the filing cabinets, and I'd find ways to, to sort all the documents that were coming in. And I was generally just helping out within this office. And my first day of work goes back to what we were initially talking about. I'm having a conversation with my dad hey, I got this office job. I think it's going to help me pay for my financial aid. And uh, I'm starting it today. And he said, you know, you have to be world-class at this job. And I I rolled my eyes because, you know, this is like the 10,000th time my dad has said this. You've heard this one before. And, and like the typical teenager, I'm just a little bit annoyed. And I said to my dad, dad, it's, it's just photocopying and filing. Like there's, there's nothing world-class about this job. And he said, think about it anyway. And so I go to this job and I remember sitting in front of this photocopy machine. I've been asked to make something like 12 copies. And this voice inside my head's like, you got to be world-class at this. And I was 
thinking, what, what in the world does that mean about photocopying? So I said, okay, well, it means it's going to be like the most crisp, straight photocopy and it'll be collated, you know, be, it will be stapled, but not just roughly stapled. It will be perfectly stapled. And I, every day I'd go to that job and I, I'd think about what does it mean to be world-class at this? And the executive assistant, Sarah Scubas, was so kind to me. And she, she really just developed like a trust. And she would ask me to do more and more things. And eventually, what was wonderful about her was that she would talk me up. She would talk me up to the other, the other admin. She would uh, talk me up to even the dean of engineering. And so one day, he was this really gruff guy, uh, D. Allen Bromley. He'd served in uh, the Bush senior cabinet, and he always came into the office with a suit on and a bow tie. And I found him incredibly intimidating. But he, he stuck his head out one day when Sarah was out of the office and had just come in. And he said, are you Anne? And, and I remember saying, yes. He said, I've heard about you. I need you to do me a favor. And I said, of course. He said, I have a special guest here and I need you to take him on a tour of the engineering facilities. Do you think you can do that? And I said, of course I can. And I proceeded to take his friend on a tour of all of the facilities and sort of where we did our work. I was taking into some of the labs that we had and showing him some of the research that was being done. And this guy, he just started asking me questions about me. And I was happy that he took an interest in me as a student. And I mentioned that I was from Palo Alto. And it turned out that he also was from Palo Alto. And uh, he asked me towards the end of this tour, hey, what are you doing during spring break? And I said, oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to visit my family. And he said, that's fantastic. Do you want to come see what I do for a living? And being hopelessly naive, I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm the CEO of Hewlett Packard, (laughs) which, you know, in the 90s was the place. It was it was the center of you pr- probably just printed those copies on one of his machines. I was, yeah, I was just thinking to myself, how did I not know that I'm talking to the CEO of Hewlett Packard? Well, it shows the incredible modesty that this man had, uh, Lou Platt. So then I, I said, yes, obviously. And I showed up during my spring break and I was thinking, what is this going to be like? And Lou just literally took me around to like all of the meetings that he was going to. And he's not one of these CEOs from our current era, not flashy. He, he drove a company car, which was the Ford Taurus, everywhere we went, yeah. drove himself. He spent a lot of time going to events which celebrated people who'd worked at the company for 30, 40 years it was just incredible. And then in the middle of that, there was a, a .NET announcement and Bill Gates flew in to make an announcement together with Lou Platt. And I was there during this whole set of meetings that was happening. He had me go and, and shadow Ann Livermore, who is an 
incredible leader and was on the board of Hewlett Packard at one point. And so I got to witness just Silicon Valley leadership in all of its glory. And I get back to my dorm after this sort of life-changing series of events where my worldview of everything that happens and what, what my place in the world might be has started to shift. And, and Lou has sent me a thank you note. He's the one who sent me a thank you note saying, thanks for coming to visit. I thought you would enjoy these. And inside were two pictures. And the first one was Lou was sitting in a chair and I was sitting on another chair where we were having a conversation. He had had a photographer come in and just snap a picture. And then the second picture was the reason the photographer had been there uh, was a picture of Lou sitting exactly in the same spot. And then where I had been sitting, Bill Gates had sat and was having a conversation with Lou. And uh, to see those two pictures side by side, you know, to me is still the, the, even the thought that, that had crossed his mind to have those two pictures taken and then to, to have them sent to me is, I don't know, it's just sort of this, the way I see mentorship is that you change a person's outlook on what they're capable of. And on some level, my dad telling me to be world-class, well, he's my dad, right? And here's someone who's the CEO of a, probably was a Fortune 50 company at that point in time, just sending me those pictures and barely knowing who I was, giving me that opportunity. I don't even know if he knew what a life-changing series of events he created for me. And it all started with, with crisp copies. Yeah, crisp <laughs> photocopies. So it's just, to me, it's, but those are inextricably bound, right? If, yeah. if I didn't care enough to do a great job, yeah. you know, people will say, oh my gosh, you've been so lucky. But on some level, you have to create your own luck and you have to create enough surface area so that when that luck suddenly drops to the ground, that you, you have created the net to catch it. And, uh, you know, I think the, the words that my dad always placed in my head created that a very wide surface area net that when the lucky event came, I was lucky enough to be able to catch it. But then you also broke into the venture capital world, which is hard to do in general. And I, and I think when you did, it was very much a, a boys club, but you seem to be very good with obstacles. So I'd love to hear uh, sort of when you decided that's what you're going to do and how did you get your start? Yeah, it's for me, it's actually a couple of starts and stops. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what was really funny was I went through a career path that was very emergent. So I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And it's, it's evidenced by the fact that I couldn't pick what grad school I was going to go to. So much so that I took the MCATs at one point, the LSATs, the GREs and the GMAT. So that's, cr that's crazy. <laughs> I could teach a Kaplan basically yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if all else fails. But I was serious enough about all of these grad schools that I would actually go through the process. I even applied to law school and got in. But back in my mind, there was this question of I'm really good at technical things, I've always been good at them. And 
combined with some instinct or desire to understand the business world that opened up to me at Hewlett Packard. And then how do I mix in this thing that I, I love speech and debate? And it came up in different forms. So in college, funny enough, while I was going through this turmoil around what will I be when I grow up, uh, I came back from Hewlett Packard and I'm talking to some of my friends about, I'm really interested in business. And I've always just thought I was going to be a doctor or research scientist. And a friend of mine who was super into financial products, he was, a, he was this guy who was really into, he wanted to have his career in distressed debt. And I didn't even know what that was. But he, for my birthday, went and photocopied the NVCA directory, I think. Yeah. Was- and he was, he was like, you know what you should do? You should be a venture capitalist. Here's like this directory a venture capitalist. It's your birthday present. Like you should go and find some of these people and like go talk to them. And I remember I'm from Palo Alto. So I kind of knew what venture capital was, but I remember thinking to myself, what is he talking about? But that directory actually traveled with me quite a bit after college. And I was working at McKinsey at one point and this friend's words just sort of came back into my mind as I was thinking about what do I do after McKinsey? And uh, I found a couple of people that I was connected to uh, that I went and talked to about venture capital. And most of them who were in venture capital at the time, so this is probably 2000, uh, they said, you know, you should really go work. Uh, Go work at a startup, uh, get some experience there, and then really VC something you do later on in life. And and so I said, okay, that sounds totally reasonable. But then there was this one job placement that was for an analyst position at Charles River Ventures. And so I decided to interview for that. And I went and talked to Ted Dintersmith at CRV in 2001, so early 2001. And I remember I walked into the office and here's this guy, he's He's been in the business forever. He's extraordinarily well-read, well-educated. He's a PhD, but he's also an English literature major. Just a fascinating human being. And we had this two-hour conversation, which was about books and music. And I think the only technical thing he asked me was about the research that I did my senior year in undergrad. That was it. It was like the most interesting conversation I had had with anyone in such a long time. What books do I read? Why did I love that author? Uh, What music am I listening to? And I was still very into classical piano and so certain pianists I loved and why. So it's nothing that would have indicated anything about venture capital. But he, at the end of that conversation, he said, I want to offer you a position here and will you take it and i i don't think i even had details on compensation or anything and i would have to move across the country and i i said yes i said yes because he was someone that if i worked for him i would learn i would learn something i would learn a lot of things 
And, and so I jumped at the chance. And my second day of work was 9-11. And so what a great experience to see someone lead through a period of extraordinary turmoil and learn from him. And so he was one of the, the best teachers, best mentors that I've had. And then the entire crew at Charles River Ventures that I got to learn from, uh, Izar Armani is another person who I still am in touch with. I have so much affection for the partnership there and the things that they taught me. And it also gave me just a, a little bit of time to pivot away from law school uh, which is where I was in already and I needed to figure out something else to do. And, and I was inspired to go and pursue a PhD at Stanford uh, because of the reflection that I, I did at CRV. My second chance to get into to venture capital was while I was in the middle of my PhD program, I ended up studying cybersecurity and math modeling because I thought I was going to start a company in that space. And I ended up teaching a lot of entrepreneurship courses in the engineering school and encountered uh, lots of incredible people, Mark Leslie, Audrey McLean, and then Steve Blank was another person that I got to teach with. And at some point, I got some advice. I think it was both from Steve as well as from Ted that I should go and find an angel investor to see their deal flow because it would give me a little bit more perspective on what was happening in the real world. So I asked a guest lecturer in one of my classes, Mike Maples, if I could shadow him every Wednesday and just look at the deals that he was looking at. And he was gracious enough to say, sure. And so I went every Wednesday and we'd look at deals together. And one day on when I was traveling up to, I remember Tahoe, I was in the car. He calls and he says, hey, and I have this great idea. This is not the venture-backed startup that you're thinking of, but I just raised some capital and now we have a backed venture startup. And I think 500,000 is the new 5 million. And if you'll be my co-founder, we can make a real go of this. And gosh, it was like 2008. So the financial crisis is in yeah, full That's a tough time. That's why 500,000 was the new 5 million. It was, but it was also, you know, in 2006, AWS had launched. Yeah. And I remember like the School of Engineering was a buzz because of the capabilities of what that might entail. And, you know, we as a research group, we ran our own servers. I mean, it was a big pain. And so you could just sort of see the writing on the wall of what this new new next generation web services, now known as cloud, was going to entail. And so I believed that this 500000 was all we needed. And I really believed that a new sort of venture capital firm could emerge out of this space. And so I was excited by that. And I felt like I was in on a secret. I think this is what a lot of founders must feel is that you have this insight and you know that it's on an exponential curve and you know that if you don't get on this exponential curve right now, in spite of all the things that could go wrong, in spite of the economy, in spite of what might be happening in the world, you feel like if you don't 
make this secret into a reality. Someone else will, and then you'll feel bad about it for the rest of your life. And I remember feeling that way. And so just a little bit after we started talking about it, I dove in and started working with Mike. Um, and that's where we, we started Floodgate in May of 2008. And so obviously you've built Floodgate into a preeminent venture firm. Now I'm curious, based on what we were talking about before, are, are there world-class ideas or are there only world-class leaders and founders and entrepreneurs? Ah, uh, I think that's, it's so intertwined. I believe the best founders don't just try to forecast the future. They build the future. They create it out of thin air and they design the future. And you, you see people do that in a way in which they bring an implausible or maybe an impossible future into being. And so that's what, what I love to look at is I think the thing that's really interesting about my job, most people say it's because they get to learn all the time, which is definitely a piece of it. But I think the best part is sometimes you get to peek into the future and you see something 10 to 15 years out that you think will make the world a better place. And sometimes it's in like, you know, ways in which it's may seem boring to other people. I think business software, a lot of people might say, how does that peek yeah. into the future really cause you to your heart to go flutter? But even things like, you know, we were early investors into Okta and single sign-on may seem like it's not that interesting. But at the end of the day, the idea that SaaS would become so prevalent that companies would need to manage them. That was a really interesting future. The thinking around what would a transportation network really look like with Lyft, I thought that was a really interesting future. So I think that the, the best founders have this insight and they see something, it's a secret around some sort of inflection point. Right. And it's delivering upon an exponential. Usually it's driven by either technology, regulatory, maybe a societal belief change that has happened right. that then causes an exponential change to occur. So you're betting on them and the problem they are trying to solve or the opportunity, not necessarily the initial solution to that opportunity. Right. We're, we're betting on secrets that people have, and we like to see sort of what that first idea is that is the first step to get you into that future, and why do those ideas connect? And what's your time frame? How far are you? Are you looking a decade out or how? Yeah, usually I'm looking out a decade. And here's sort of what's really interesting is that some people think of secrets in a way that is pretty loose. It could be a secret. They think it's a secret, but it's a pretty well-known secret. I'm yeah. talking about something that is non-consensus. Right. And I think that the standard for non-consensus has to be extraordinarily high. That's the piece that I find most interesting. And when we encounter a secret that is truly non-consensus, 
it's pretty magical. Does it usually go against prevailing wisdom or conventional wisdom? I believe so. I think that most of the time what we'll see is that the outsized outcome has to come from something that is not conventional. And I think, you know, it's interesting. Jeff Bezos was talking about this in his most recent congressional statement. And I'm going to paraphrase it. He was saying these outsized outcomes need to come from something that is unconventional. But most of the time, conventional thought is right. So you have this small chance that you are right because you're non-consensus. And so that non-consensus belief can't just be any kind of belief. It has to give you massive acceleration into the market. That's the ten, I guess that's where the 10x, like if, it, if you're going against all the prevailing wisdom, then it has to be big enough to account for that. Exactly. And most of the time, people will give you either a belief that is consensus, right. in which case I'm going to wait for the traction to prove out you're the one that is able to execute upon that consensus belief, or the belief might be non-consensus, but it's not about something that's exponential, that will give you that exponential outcome. And so the magic happens when you have a non-consensus belief that gives you an acceleration into the market that will provide that exponential. That's why you get paid the big bucks. Those can't be easy to find. Those can't be easy to find (laughs) and that it requires a ton of execution to be able to close that gap. So yeah. And what happens when you're like, wow, this person has the right idea, but they are not the right person to do it. Are you still willing to go forward with that or do you try to put together a partnership? Um, So for the most part, when we are working with founders, those things are really interlinked because the second piece is actually you have to be able to execute on that insight. And if I believe you have a really magical insight, but we don't think you're the person to be able to do something about it, then fundamentally there's a mismatch anyway. So usually at the pre-seed where the the person barely has an idea but just has a series of insights, we are looking for a founding team that has two ingredients. One is someone who is capable of really building anything fast. We're looking at sort of four to six-week cycles of builds. And so the ability to constantly build out new product and try things out is really critical. And then the second is usually different person, a person who's entirely uh, dedicated to the idea maze. And the idea maze is sort of this, this concept that, that they will traverse all of the questions, all of the competition, all of the history around this idea, and they will know all of the baggage that might come with it, the skeletons, and also the opportunities. And so you might come to this person and ask them a question, and if they don't know the answer, within another four to six weeks, they will know 10 times more than anyone else on that one piece because they will chase down the answer. And so we're looking for Two people, essentially, minimum, who have those characteristics. 
And if they do, I believe they can execute on that idea and the, the idea of that is non-consensus, but right. And then the third ingredient really is just like, we have to have affection for that, that insight that is non-consensus. We have to believe that it's true. But if those three things are there, I will invest in, in that team 10 out of 10 times. All right. So for everyone listening, there's your report card that you teach for the test. So, and last question, what's a personal or professional mistake? And this could be singular or repeated, but that you've, you've learned the most from. Yeah, this also comes from my childhood. Um, this is from a different event that I was working on, but I used to do a lot of piano and uh, there was a, a piano competition that I was in. I was playing the Mendelssohn Concerto Number no. 2. And I remember at one point I was thinking to myself, this is going so well. I am doing so well. And um, in my head, I was no longer thinking about the music. I was just thinking about like, oh, wow, like I really hit that trill and and that scale and that arpeggio just sounded great. And the minute I did that, it was in the middle of the second movement. I still remember it to this day. I forgot where I was in the piece. And my accompanist, who is a friend of mine, just kind of kept playing. But I remember just realizing that in that moment, I had completely lost this competition. And it felt horrible for about 10 seconds because I felt like I had it. And then I had this moment where I realized, well, I've lost the competition anyway, so screw it. And it released me to play and just play. Yeah. And I, I remember I just forgot the judges were there and I just said, you know, now that you aren't in a competition anymore, now that you've totally lost anyway, just play it the way you want to play it. And the second half of that piece to me was pure magic. The first half was probably like technically really good, but it actually wasn't magic. And it taught me so much about what am I doing this for? Like, why, why do I do the things that I do? And I got commentary back from that competition where the judges obviously noted you had this huge brain fart in the middle. And they said, whatever happened in that second half was magic. And uh, it was almost like the brain fart caused <laughs> the magic to happen. But it was like this massive mistake. It was like, it was such a bad feeling, but then a great feeling at the end. And I didn't actually know how to reconcile that. But even to this day, there are moments where I live so much in my head and then I try to get out of it by remembering that. That was such an important lesson of presence and not performing. You know, the moment you start performing and you're performing for someone else or for another reason, you're, you're like asking for the brain fart to happen right? And it was a profound lesson for me. I still think about it to this day. It's funny, like you can beat yourself up over something that happened 30, 40 years ago, but like 
for me, there was such a win that came out of it. I really wish that that it hadn't happened on some level. It was so, it was profoundly embarrassing too, uh, where you're like your company is just playing and like I'm supposed to be playing, but I can't even tell where I am in the piece anymore. But it was there was a certain amount of magic that came out of it that it's something I won't ever forget. That is a good learning. And where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, well, so I post occasionally on Medium and you can find me, I think it's under Animaniac or Amira. Uh, My Twitter feed is Animaniac. It's A-N-N-I-M-A-N-I-A-C, which was my college nickname. And uh, that's where you can probably find the most information about me. Okay, great. And thanks for sharing your story with us. You've clearly set a brilliant example for how to achieve excellence in everything you do. And I'm very excited to see uh, what it is that you come up with next. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Anne and her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Anne, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening at Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom to leave your review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.